So here in the book of Luke in chapter 3, I want you to notice what he says here in verse 23. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph. He wasn't Joseph's son. Joseph happened to be his legal father, but he wasn't his dad. He was in the right position. Mary was already pregnant by the seed of the Holy Spirit and not by Joseph. Joseph did not touch Mary until after Jesus was born. And then Mary had more children. So here you have a genealogy given, and it goes on down through here, and so-and-so begot, and so-and-so begot, and so-and-so forgot. Then you get down here to verse 31, where it says, Which was the son of Mele, which was the son of Menan, which was the son of Matatha, and which was the son of Nathan, which was the son of David. So you've got to go all the way back to David. And also in the book of Matthew, it has to go back to David. The son of, the son of, the son of, all the way through. And then you'll find out there in verse 33, you'll see the last words there, the son of Judah. So this is one of the tribes of Israel. And in verse 34, which was the son of Jacob, which was the son of Isaac, which was the son of Abraham. It's a genealogy going all the way back. And then look what he says in verse 38. Which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the, what? A son of God. See, God created him. He's called the son of God. But is there more to it than meets the eye? So, he has to go all the way back to show he is a man born into the world so that he has the right to be the kinsman redeemer. He has to be related to the human race. Jesus had to be a man. But he's also God. He is the perfect God-man. Now, take your Bible and go back to the book of Genesis in chapter 4. Back to Genesis and chapter 4. Now, you know that Adam and Eve came together. The Bible says they had a son. And his name was Abel. And they had another son. They had Cain. They had Cain and then they had Abel. But Cain got mad. Got mad at God. Mad at his brother for some reason. Because he made sacrifices and God would accept one and couldn't accept the other one. This is your first fundamentalist and your first modernist. One believe in doing what God said. That's your conservative Christian fundamentalist. The other one was a, a modern liberal. He wanted to do it his way and didn't need to listen to God. And so one killed the other. Cain killed Abel. But God put a mark on him so that nobody would kill him, and God let him live a long time. The Bible doesn't say how long. It's just that he lived long enough to go to a certain place and get, have a wife and have kids, and their kids had kids. So look what he says here in verse 16. In verse 16 of chapter 4. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. And he built a city, called the name of the city, and blah, blah, blah. It goes on down through here and has all these things. In verse 19, and Lamech took unto him two wives. But this is the line of Cain. 
He took two wives. And so they began to take as many as they wanted. It wasn't long before God says, that's enough. Because Cain was rebellious. And down in verse 23, And Lamech said unto his wives, Hear my voice, ye wives. Hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding. In other words, I had to defend myself, and I had to kill this guy. And if, if Cain can have protection, surely I can. So we have more death, and we're going to have more problems. And he says that he had wives. That's in the line of Cain. Now, is that, why would it mention that? Why would it put that in the Bible? If it didn't have any, you know, value to it, don't bring it up. But he brought it up for a reason. And so it says here in verse 25, look at verse 25. And Adam, Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, called his name Seth, for God said she hath appointed me, and you ought to underline these two words, another seed, instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. So he was a seed from which is going to come some more people, and not just Cain, got another one. And his name is called Seth. And you'll notice in verse 26, And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and his name is called Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. So you ought to unline that statement. So here you have two lines. You have Cain, down to Lamech, rebellious. You have Seth, and you have another seed, and they begin to call upon the name of the Lord. So there are those that came in this line, and there's other ones in another line. There's two lines. Don't make an issue out of it. It's not an issue, but it is. It's in the book. And so then you start off in the book of Genesis chapter 5 and verse 1 where it says, and this is the book of the generation of Adam. See what it says? In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him, male and female, and blah, 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 in the day that he was created. In verse 3, and Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. Why didn't it mention Cain? It mentioned Seth. And the days of Adam after he begot Seth were 800 years and begot sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. And then you have here in verse 6, the family of Seth. So there's these two lines, two families, and all these down through here, the line of Seth, you have Enoch in there in verse 6, uh, 21, where it says, And Enoch lived sixty and five years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God. Now, you don't have that in the other line, but you have it in this line. So should I believe that there's a possibility that Adam called a son of God? And this is talking about a different line, and it breaks off from the lineage of Cain. And so, as you go down through and you start reading this, I believe that you'll see something else. Let me just go back to your notes now. Much of this is given right there in your scriptures that you can look at. Now, turn to your Bible and turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 22. Matthew, and chapter 22. In Matthew 22... And look there in verse 29. In verse 29, he says, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. So what was the problem? Well, because there were some people that did not believe in the resurrection. And so they thought they were 
trick Jesus Christ. So he says in verse 23, the same day came to him the Sadducees. And the reason they were Sadducees is because they don't believe in the power of God in the resurrection. He said in verse 24, Master, Moses says, if a man die having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now, there were with us seven brothers. And the first, when he had married a wife, he deceased, died. And having no issue, uh, left his wife unto his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third until the seventh. Last of all, the woman finally died. Oh, that's a Yankee phrase, you know. He says, in the resurrection, in verse 28, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Isn't that a good question? Hey, here's a woman had seven husbands. And she finally croaks. In heaven, who is going to be her husband? And he says, ye do err. Not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. So even though the angels fell doesn't mean that they have the ability to transform themselves into a man in order to perform sex. Where does it say that in the Bible that they can do that? You won't find it nowhere in the Bible. So why should I put it in there? Because that's what I want to believe. No. He says in verse 31, But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God? I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, if those men are not alive, then God is the God of some dead people that don't exist anymore because they didn't believe in a resurrection. But God is a God of the living, which means that these people are still alive. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive, and they're with God. And it says that uh, there's no marrying or giving of marriage, and they're like the angels, which don't get married and don't have. So I don't believe that it goes to the first position that I mentioned about the angels. I believe it's totally different. Now, look there back in your notes. When he makes a statement in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 2 that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, they took them wives of all which they chose. And we can see in the other line that they begin to take more than one wife. Doesn't say that in the other one, but that one. So if read in context of the two previous chapters, the sons of Seth's line were marrying daughters from Cain's line. So these ungodly men were taking these other women that came from the godly line and marrying them. And you know the Bible teaches not to be unequally yoked together. If there's a saved man and a woman that's not saved, is it wise for a saved man to marry an unsaved woman? No, it's not. It is not a wise thing to do. Can they do it? Yes. Can they still have children? Yes. And sometimes those children, because of the disobedience, become rebellious. More so. Because they're not going to have a godly example of people who justify the wrong. Now, you can get saved and correct the problem and then try to raise the children correctly and do right. But there's always that tendency. It just goes like the second law of thermodynamic. gets worse and worse and worse. And it destroys. So, look there in your notes. I want you to see this. Because I believe it's very important. In the... The scriptures, when it talks about the 
giants in the land. The giants in the land. Genesis 6, 4 says there were giants in the earth in those days. And after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. So, children becoming men. It's just, they become mighty men. And they were of old of men of renown. Now, who did God use to write the first five books of the Bible? Moses. So Moses wrote Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. He wrote these books. So what else did he say? If you look there in your Bible to the book of Numbers in chapter 16. Numbers in chapter 16. There were people that rose up against Moses. You know when they crossed the Red Sea and they got out there into the wilderness uh, there's always somebody who thinks somebody else has too much power. What they mean is, I want some of it. There's people in America that think some people have too much money. What it means is they want some of it. And then when there's somebody who wants some of it, there's always somebody you can vote for that say, I'll get it for you. There's a sermon in there somewhere. In Numbers chapter 15, look what it says in verse 2. And they rose up before Moses... With certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. Now, were these giants in the land? Were these half-breeds with angels? I don't think so. Well, why would I think those other back there in Genesis are? Here is a reference to the people, and God used Moses to write Genesis and Numbers. And this is what he said in both places. And so there were men of renown. In other words, these were people that were famous in the congregation. Everybody knows them. These were some leaders. These are the leaders. But yeah, but God chose Moses to lead. And so they wanted to take authority away and said, we can, God can use us just like he can you. You take too much upon yourself. Who do you think you are? Uh-huh. And so they were against Moses. They weren't for him. They were against him. They were mighty in that they were rebellious against authority. So he says there in verse 3, And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves among the congregation of the Lord. And when Moses heard it, he fell upon his face. And so God, uh, all he did was just open up the earth, and they went to hell with the boots on. But this was um, a reference to some people who were very rebellious against God and against God's man. And they were men of renown. In other words, they were famous and well-known leaders among the people. We got people just like that in America today. And I believe that uh, our world today is as wicked as they were back then. Oh, I could get into the, the Sodomites and with Lot and all that, but I don't have time today. So I'm not going to. So take your Bible and go back there to your notes. Look in chapter 10. Genesis in chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10 
things were starting to settle down. People began to multiply after they got out of the uh, ark. And so he says here, in verse, say like verse 5, By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, everyone after his tongue, after their families, in their nations. And the sons of Ham and Cush and Mizram and Phut and Canaan, and goes on down through to say, and then he talks about in verse 8, And Cush begat Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one in the earth. Mighty. Just like we use the word, they were giants in the land. They were giants in the sense that they were mighty in their rebellion against God and against authority. And so he says here in verse 9, the last part of it, Even as Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord, means he was against the Lord, against God. He's the one that started the Tower of Babel and God came down and gave them different languages and so forth. And they had to leave off the building of it. And in the days of Peleg was the earth divided. So you have these teachings right here. And God used Moses to write this and the other. And I believe they all agree perfectly. So there's no problem. And so when you go down through here and you read and you study these things, always check the total concept of the context. Because you need to understand what is God saying? What's more important? So if the world wants to make a movie, I don't care. But don't say the well, Bible says that if the Bible doesn't say that. If you read into something, say, well, I read into this. This isn't what it really says. This is made up. This is not for real. But wouldn't it be neat if somebody would make something that's real, biblical, scriptural, just like God says it? Then I think it would be good. And then I might go see it. It is important to remember, even as we are going to have communion service this morning, it tells us what we believe. You see, God says the world was wicked, and mankind sinned against God. So God brought the flood and destroyed him, and the only ones that went in the ark was Noah and Mrs. Noah and the three sons and their wives, and everything came from them. But the ark was a type of safety from the flood. Those that were in the ark were safe even though the world around them was falling apart. Now, we talk about Christ. Christ is our ark of safety. You see, when I trusted Christ as my Savior 53 years ago, God took me and put me in the ark, put me in Christ. He is my ark. I am safe in the ark. Regardless of what happens in this world, I am safe. And He is going to deliver me to the place where I need to be. He's going to take me all the way to heaven. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, you see, the bread represents his body, represents his body. And what that tells us when we do this, every month we do this, because as you read the scriptures, you find out they forgot, they forgot, they forgot, they forgot, they forgot. This is done in remembrance so that we don't forget. We don't forget. So we know about the body of Christ. How that God placed that seed inside of Mary. And Mary had that holy thing which is called the Son of God. The Son of the Highest. Jesus Christ says, a body hast thou prepared me. So Christ was born into this literal world. Literally he came. Literally you could see a body. A person that walked around. And he was placed inside of that body. And he lived 
without ever breaking a law, without ever sinning. He was a perfect lamb of God. And this lamb had to be prepared in a body without any flaws in order that he might take the sins of the world upon himself because he had none of his own. He didn't have to die for his. And shed his blood and the life of the flesh is in the blood. And he says, I have given to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. So if Christ is going to give his life for me, he shed his blood. The precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so when we take the bread, we're supposed to remember Jesus came into this world. He lived in a body. He took our sins upon himself and died on the cross. He shed his blood, came back from the dead. And he tells us to look back at what he did and to look forward to his coming again so that you and I will realize every day we live, we should always keep the most important things in our mind. And the most important thing is, it's not whether they made a movie, they didn't make a movie. It doesn't matter about the stock markets going up and down. All I know is, one of these days, I'm out of here. And I mean, I have too much time left. But the time that I do have left, man, I want to try to tell as many people as I possibly can. And I want to try to challenge people to serve the Lord. Look up here just a moment. I just thought of a good illustration that might work. This hand represents you and me. This is sin. We all have sin on us. Everybody is a sinner because God says so. He says there's no difference. Nobody's better than anybody else. He said we've all come short of God's perfection. Are you perfect? Are you perfect? Are you perfect? Nobody's perfect. That means you've all come short. We are sinners. And the Bible says to pay for sin is eternal separation from God in hell. But you see, God loves us. doesn't want us to go to hell. But he can't let us go to heaven the way we are. If we went to heaven the way we are, we'd lie and steal and cheat and rob and all that stuff in heaven. Then heaven won't be heaven. So God says, you can't come unless you're perfect. Okay, what did that just do to the whole human race? Nobody gets to go. Except me and George Washington. <laughs> and he might have told that lie, I don't know. But see, now look, this is you and me. And because of sin, we can't get in. And God says, you cannot earn your way to heaven. Regardless of how good you try to be, you'll never be good enough because you have to be perfect. You got a problem. I got a problem. We all have a problem. And there's only one that can solve the problem. That's why Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. That's why he had to come and have a virgin birth. Be born, have a body without a sinful nature. And he would be a perfect sacrifice to die in our place. So Jesus Christ, who had no sin, did not have to die. So because of his love for us, he took all the sin, not most of it, all the sin of all the world, paid for it on the cross 2,000 years ago, came back from the dead. Our sins have already been paid. The only thing you and I have to do is, will you believe he did it for you? If you will believe that he did this for you, God takes and puts this payment to your account, you get to go to heaven. And see, just because... The sin's been paid doesn't give you his righteousness. When you believe, his righteousness is put to your account. Our sins are put to his account, but his righteousness is not put to your account until you believe he did it for you. When I believed that 53 years ago, God gave me his righteousness. 
And if he gave me his righteousness and he took my sin, that would make me as righteous as God. I'm going to heaven because of what Christ did for me, not what I do for him. No man has ever lived good enough to earn his way to heaven or woman to. Nobody. And that's why it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, anybody, believeth in him, should not perish, means you won't go to hell, but have everlasting life. That's the best news in all the world. So if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, do you believe that he died and paid for your sins, came back from the dead? Do you believe he did it for you? That means you are a child of God. You've trusted Christ as your Savior. That means you're going to heaven when you die. And that's why God says this is a divine command. It's the Lord's table. It's not the pastors. It's not the church. It's the Lord. God wants you to take that little wafer or whatever it is and, and take that and remember he did this for you. He bore your sins on the cross. We do not believe in transubstantiation where this becomes the body of Christ and that becomes the blood of Christ. No, it doesn't. We don't believe that. I believe it's just a piece of bread. And that's some little grape juice. And it's all it is. But it's a picture of the most wonderful thing in all the world. I hope that what I've said this morning, if, if you want to believe that that was the angels, I love you anyway. I don't care. It's not going to change my destination or yours. We're going to go to heaven because we believe what Christ did on the cross for us. True? Amen. Let's pray, shall we? With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around. If you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, friend, would you realize you're going to die one day and you're going to have to stand before God. And he makes the statement, it's appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. Would you right now believe that when Christ died that he died for you? Would you believe he did it for you? God said if you'll believe it, he will give you as a free gift everlasting life. And he'll give you his righteousness. You go to heaven on that, not on yours. You and I will never be good enough. It's the gift. And so if you believe he did it for you, he will save you right now. And if you're making that decision, I'd like to know and I'd like to have prayer for you. And I'm going to ask you in just a moment. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to have you forward. But right where you're sitting, say, preacher, that made sense to me. And I will right now, I will trust Christ as my Savior. I believe he died for me. And I want to be certain of going to heaven when I die. So right now, I will trust the Lord as my Savior. And I'd like for you to pray for me. Would you just slip your hand up very quickly and put it right back down? Say, anyone at all? Anyone at all? Just slip it up real quick. Anyone at all? Yes, God bless you. I see your hand. Yes, God bless you. Anyone else? Just slip it up real quick and put it right back down. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to come up to you. I'm not going to pin you against the wall. But it's so important. There's no trick to this, no gimmick. Say, so yes, I will trust Christ as my Savior. Anyone else? Our Father, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. We're thankful, Lord, that salvation is free, that you loved us that much. We thank you for the individual that indicated by an uplifted hand that they would trust you as their Savior. By doing so, they become your child, your child forever. You'll never cast them out, never lose them. We ask your blessings now upon the communion service for each one here, each child of God, to examine their own life and to remember who you are and what you did for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.